Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We are in Revelation, as we'll just be for a while. But uh, we've been uh, going through, I guess we started episode or two, maybe a couple episodes ago in uh, the seven messages. Not the seven letters. We're going to talk about that again tonight. But uh, the seven messages of chapters two and three. Uh, and so we're just going to, tonight's going to be fun because I think we're just going to take some passes, maybe more than tonight. Who knows how long it's going to take. But we're just going to kind of glean through one pass, look at th- some things, go through it again and look at it from a different perspective. So it's going to be uh, fun to do it that way. But as we continue to study, and especially as we're hanging out in chapters two and three in these seven messages, what are some good resources that uh, folks could use, Rob? Well, number one, just be reading the text, right? Just keep reading the text. And we've said it before that you might go, well, I don't understand it. Yeah, but the more you meditate upon it, the more you read it, the more the word of God saturates into your heart, I would encourage you just to keep reading it and you'll you'll be amazed how much you're going to get out of the text that way. We also have the devotional guide that's up on the determinedtruth.com website. So when you go to the blog, uh, the blog tab, and then uh, click under under themes. You can scroll down the page and it says devotional guide there. Or if you click on one of the blogs and it takes you to the Pathio site and click under archives and then choose um, devotional guide. And obviously the most recent devotional guide was the book of Revelation. I'd encourage you just to do that. Do that with a group of people. I've been, uh, Vinny, you might not know this. Actually, I've been, there's a Bible study group that has called me up and said, hey, Rob, would you speak to our group? You know, via Zoom, obviously. I'm like, they're studying Revelation. I'm like, Absolutely. They're studying Revelation, and and I'm available for that also. So if, if you have a group or you want to get a group together, feel free to do that. And then we have the YouTube page. The YouTube page has all the videos, studies of the Zoom Bible study that I've been leading through the book of Revelation, starting in chapter four. I haven't yet posted. I'm not sure if I will post the, the ones from chapters one through three, but starting in chapter four, which is the, the heavenly vision of John, uh, all the way through. And we're in chapter 20, and we've spent about four weeks in chapter 20. In our last episode... Hmm was on the millennium where I'm like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what I think about the millennium, which I usually don't do. And first time like, ever. I was going to say yeah, that's yeah, a big first deal time for you. Ever. And so now you're not the only one who knows any. I know. But, yeah. But uh, <laughs> it's so special for a while. Anyway, so go to the, go to um, at Rob Downrumple. It's not the determined YouTube, uh, YouTube page. It's the at Rob Downrumple YouTube page and watch those videos of the Bible studies there also. And again, if you have any questions, feel free to let us know. So, and Hey, we were sorry. We didn't get an episode out, out last week. We were, uh, taking vacations there, and Vinny was just hanging out around the house having a, a jolly old yeah. time, weren't you, Vinny? Uh, you know, emergency uh, tooth sur- or oral surgery is awesome. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, and it's so yeah. much fun to do a podcast after that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so Vinny, just so everybody knows, Vinny texted me and said his mouth hurts. And I'm like, your mouth hurts me all the time. So I'm just, <laughs> I'm there, old. I'm there to lift you up and encourage you. You have the spiritual gift of empathy. You, you uh, lift yeah. me up in the same way Darth Vader lifts people up. Yeah. yeah <laughs> his yeah. enemies. A Darth Maul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah so. Anyway. Do uh, it. Do yeah. it. <laughs> that was the emperor. That was the emperor. Yeah. Emperor, what's his Palpatine. name? Palpatine. Palpatine, yeah. I, I like I was to refer to Calcedon, but that's like no. Calcedon, nice, yeah. yes, yeah. good call. Yeah. I, I was going to say in the, in the in the Angelo household, we call him Emperor Belichick, but ah, uh, oh, oh, I, I understand. So be, because yeah. I hate the Patriots, so yeah, that's that's okay. Yeah. Anyway, but Raiders and Patriots are playing in the regular season again this year. Oh, cool! That's yeah, one so, win. That's one win for us. That's, I was going <laughs> to say, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, and and the Red Sox had a nice weekend with, with oh, the. Oh my gosh! That, well, town, it's that that's a, that's like a minor league team. You can't really. Yeah, uh, I know, but it's nice to kind of hone your skills up and give people yeah. some playing time. 
Exactly. Anyways, I'm moving right along. Here we go. Moving right along. So we're getting into the seven messages, chapters two and three. And let's bring this back uh, actually a few weeks. We talked about numbers and the significance of numbers. We have seven churches. Uh, seven can be representative of, uh, you know, bigger things, completion. You you related it to creation uh, when we talked. How, how might we relate the seven messages to the seven churches? Are we just specifically talking about seven churches or should there be something more uh, big and grand that we're looking at? Yeah, as we, I think we alluded to this before that the, the number seven signifies completion, totality, perfection, things along that line. And the fact that there are seven churches is really an indication that, yes, John's writing on one hand to seven particular churches in the Roman province of Asia on the west coast of modern day Turkey. And the letters are relevant to them but he has all of Christendom in mind. And that means not just all of Christendom in mind, but all of Christian, and I probably shouldn't even say Christendom. I don't like that word, but all of Christianity in mind. Well, and Christendom would be something more like post uh, Nicaea, right? Yeah. And that's, and it's problematic, right? Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. So, but he has all of Christianity in mind and that includes all of our churches today also. So I think the letters or the messages are very relevant to us also. So remember each one of the messages says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church as. Each one of the letters is clearly written to all the churches there. So, mm-hmm. so Craig Keener is a wonderful scholar, and he's written yeah. a, a few smaller books, I think. On like been, everything that can be written about. He's written a commentary on like on everything. And his commentary, and each commentary is 8,000 words. Yeah, yeah does, his commentary on Acts is like 1,600 <laughs> pages, four volumes. It's like, yeah. okay, how do you have a commentary on Acts that's four volumes? And then also yeah. have a commentary on Revelation and the commentary on Galatians. and a commentary. It's like... And, and he's a great guy. But anyways, so he wrote, he says this, traditionally scholars have viewed Revelation as addressing oppressed Christians facing persecution from the mighty Roman state. Today, many emphasize instead that the book addressed complacent, spiritually anemic Christians. Revelation speaks to churches both alive and dead, but more of the churches are in danger of compromising with the world than of dying from it. This makes the book relevant to North American Christianity, Christianity today. And that touched on the point that we made earlier that Revelation was probably not written during a time of persecution, but maybe during a time where they're expecting persecution. But instead, as Craig Keener brings out, it was written to address churches that were threatening, 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 threatening to compromise their faith. And it's, I think, very relevant to us also. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, take our first pass through the seven messages. Uh, where, where do you want to start? What, what perspective do you want to take? Well, I think the first thing I want to impress upon you is that the seven messages are important because of what John was saying to the churches then. It sets a tone for, hey, this is what I'm trying to communicate to you guys in the rest of the message and the rest of the, the heavenly vision and things of that nature as well. And it also speaks to us today also. So the first thing I want you to get understand is the fact that these seven messages are an integral part of the rest of the book of Revelation. You can't separate these out from the rest of the book. So sometimes people take one of two, two postures, and we've discussed this a little bit before. Some you know, churches will preach the seven messages and then like not discuss the rest of the book. I'm like, no, you can't do that because they're, they're intimately connected. And sometimes people just, they skip the seven messages because they want to get to the apocalyptic stuff. Oh, okay, when's all this going to happen? And what does mm-hmm. all this mean? And the reality is the seven messages are very vital to understanding the rest of the book. And what John's trying to convey throughout, throughout the rest of the book. So um, now let's begin by by making that argument first. Then, so why do we believe the seven messages are an integral part of, of the rest of the book? And let's do that by opening up the chapter four, verses one and two, to begin with. So Revelation four, verses one and two. You want to read those, Vinny? Sure. 
All right. After this, I looked, and there was a great rapture. No one was left in their cars. Sorry. <laughs> I think you got the wrong translation. I, I, th I think that's the wrong translation. Yeah, I don't know. And planes were falling from the sky. <laughs> that's what the movie was. There was lumps of clothes left on park benches everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I still, I still think that's the wrong verse. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, yeah, that's not chapter four you're reading from. That's, I'm not sure what chapter that but, is. But right? that's where it's supposed to happen. Well, that's what yeah. I was taught as a kid. Oh, okay. that's the parenthesis that you wrote in in your Schofield the, Bible. The great parenthesis, yes. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Sorry for being snarky uh, there. By the way, that was um, funny. for those guys that are listening, that was blasphemous because he, he yes. added to the book of Revelation. <laughs> Which Revelation he specific, John tells us in bid 22, yeah, don't do that. that. But, yeah. So that's just an, the reason why Vinny did that was to show you as an example of what not to do. Was, yes. Yeah. So thank you, Vinny, for doing that. <laughs> and of course, uh, next week we'll report the curses that have come upon your yes. home as a, result, yes. as a result of this. That's why I get paid the big bucks, Rob. Okay. okay. After you this, know? I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must uh, take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. All right. Is it now, just verse one and two? Yeah. Yeah, just verse one and two. Now let's look at the, obviously we have a chapter break there and it's a good chapter break, chapter four, verse one. But the very end of the last of the seven messages is the, the message of the church of Laodicea. And it says in verse 21, he who overcomes, I'll grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So the message ends with a promise to sit down with him on the throne of the father. And then mm -hmm. what happens two verses later, John sees a throne and one sitting on the throne. So clearly he links the end of the message of, to the church in Laodicea with the beginning of this, what we call the heavenly vision or chapter four, verse one. Well, and just thing, real quick, yeah, well, real quick, you'd mentioned that it is a good chapter division right here because, uh, you know, these are things that are inserted like 500 years ago. So they're, they're good, helpful tools. But while it's good, it's appropriate for the structure. It also does break up the flow. Right. And how often do we just assume that at the end of chapter three, the curtain comes down, scene over, we could have intermission now. And, and the idea is that it's meant to be read uh, moving into the next uh, scene. Right. But they didn't know when they wrote the Bible that we only have five minutes for our devotional time today. So <laughs> exactly. I need these breaks. Yeah. No. Yeah. And that's a good point. Most of these books were meant to be read in one sitting. Mm -hmm. And what revelation takes you, what, an hour, a little more than an hour mm -hmm. uh, to, to sit down and do the whole thing. So that that's correct. And again, so it is understandable. Yeah. We only have a certain amount of time, but be careful about chapter breaks. We've talked about them before. So yeah, yeah. good point. All right. So that's the first argument. The first argument is, the end of the seven messages is linked with the beginning of the seven of the heavenly vision of chapter four. The second clue, which we read in chapter four, verse one, or that you read in chapter four, four, verse one was, it says, and the first voice, which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here. And that first voice actually refers to chapter, chapter one, verse 10. John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard a voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in the book, what you see and send, send it to the seven churches. And so the first voice was the one that appeared to John on Patmos. And so what we call the first story of the first scene, chapter 1, 9 through 322, John's on Patmos, vision of Jesus, writes seven messages. That scene is clearly connected with the second scene. John's now taken up to heaven and he sees God sitting on a throne. And they're connected, of course, by the fact that it's the same voice that spoke with him at the beginning of each of the two, of the two scenes. Then we can go even further. And, that's, and we'll discuss this in more detail over the course of the next couple of weeks. But each of the messages ends with a promise of blessing for the ones who overcome. 
and the promise of blessing. Like if you overcome, I'll grant you the, the right to sit down with me on my throne. Or if you overcome, you'll get to eat from the tree of life. Or if you overcome, you won't uh, be hurt by the second death. These promises of blessing are all fulfilled later in the book. So you, you have to read the rest of the book to, to find out when they actually received this blessing. So the right to eat from the tree of life, which was the promise of the church in Ephesus in chapter two, verse seven. Obviously that's Revelation 22, verse two, where the, he showed me the river, the water of life, uh, as clear as crystal. On either side of the river was the tree of life. Ah, there you go. Uh, and Smyrna, the one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And of course, we don't actually know what the second death is, but they did. Uh, and of course, that's referred to in chapter 20, verse six, um, that they won't be hurt by the second death. The, the church in Philadelphia, and this is so important. The church in Philadelphia in chapter three, verse 12, is promised that if you overcome, I'll make you a pillar and the temple of my God, hmm. which means you'll be part of the building. And of course, the temple of my God is the new Jerusalem. It says actually the new Jerusalem. And that, of course, looks forward to the new Jerusalem, uh, Revelation 21, 9 through 22, 9. These letters are a vital part of the whole book. So a second ago, you actually did slip and you called them letters. I do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. And we, we, you talked about that before, how even when we talk about this, yeah. you've for so long, you've referred to them as letters that you'll do that. But you've been trying to emphasize how there are seven messages. Yeah, right. uh, why are they not letters? We, we really haven't played yeah. that out yet. Uh, so we could yeah. spend some more time talking about that tonight. And we'll get into that in specific and even in more detail as we proceed. But the first thing is. They're not letters because they don't correspond to any of the formal features of letters found in the ancient world. So Paul's letters follow fairly well a customary format of letter writing. By the way, 1 John doesn't follow a letter writing no. format either. So it's probably not a letter. And the book of Hebrews doesn't really either. It's probably no. a sermon, even though we call them letters. But uh, letters in the ancient world had three key parts. They had an opening, which usually where the speaker would identify himself as well as his recipients. And then he'd say something along the lines of grace to you and peace from him who is, or from God, the father and Lord Jesus Christ. And you kind of have that at the beginning of revelation chapter one, but you don't have that in any of the seven messages. Secondly, they have a body or the body of the letter itself. And then they have a customary closing, right? Phil and Philippi, we, they send their greetings, greetings greet those yeah. who are there and yeah, Thanksgiving and things of that nature there. And Paul will often have his letter in the opening, have a, an opening prayer and things like that also. So they're not letters because they don't have any of those features at all. Furthermore, they correspond really well to prophetic messages. And here's the thing that we have to figure out or that we want to understand. And that is, as we move through the vision, the visionary portion of the letter, which the whole, the whole letter, the whole book is a, a vision, the visionary, visionary portion of the central part of the book of Revelation, which we call the heavenly vision, chapter four through chapter 16, right? That's the good stuff that people always talk about. Well, I'm not sure it's the good stuff. But anyways, the New Jerusalem is the good stuff. One of the things that's going to happen in there is that John's going to be commissioned to be a prophet. He's going to take a scroll and he's going to eat it, which is what Ezekiel does. in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 8 through 3, 3. He's going to eat it and then he's going to be told, now go prophesy. John is a, a prophet. He's commissioned as a prophet in the central vision itself. And so we need to think of the whole book as John functioning as a prophet also. So while we look at the messages and knowing that, okay, they're, they don't have a letter structure like we would see in Paul or uh, even James kind of has, it's, it's a letter. It starts like a letter doesn't end like a letter, uh, which is funny because Hebrews doesn't start like a letter, but then it does end yeah, like a right. letter, right? Uh, but uh, we definitely see that these seven messages have, even though they don't have an epistolatory structure, they have a similar structure within themselves. 
Uh, yes, they do. For the most part, they do. Each <laughs> of the messages is going to begin with an exhortation to an angel to write, and then it's going to have a description of Jesus, and each, each one of them does this. A description of Jesus, identifying him as the one who speaks to the churches. And then five of the letters are going to have words of affirmation, something positive to say. Two of the letters don't have anything positive. And then five of the letters are going to have words of censure or warning, like something negative. Hey, you guys better stop doing this. And then each of the messages is going to have an exhortation to listen to the one who has ears to hear. First three letters, the one who has ears to hear, let him hear, occurs before the promise of the one who overcomes. And the last four messages, the one who has ears to hear occurs at the end, and the one and the promise of the one who overcomes occurs first. So you had mentioned that each one of the messages begins with these are the words of. And so you, you said this is significant. Uh, so how, how is this significant? Yeah. And I, we may have discussed this before. I'm not sure if we did, if we have or not. This is your clue that each of the messages are prophetic messages. So we know they're prophetic messages because John functions as a prophet. In the book of Revelation, he's commissioned, and therefore the whole book takes on this words to the churches from a prophetic messenger. But here's your clue. Jesus is speaking prophetically to the people, uh, to, the, to the churches. So if you compare the translations in chapter Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, I have the New American Standard up here, Vinny, and then you can read whatever translation you have up. Okay. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks on the seven golden lampstands, says this. And the mm -hmm. phrase that we're concerned about is says this. Okay, which one do you have? Yeah, so in ESV, it says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So they front load the, the exactly. words of. Yeah, they, they and then the, they keep the, that the structure consistently through all the messages. Exactly. And then the Net Bible says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who has a firm grasp on the seven stars. And mm. so they front loaded it again and they made it a solemn pronouncement, which brings mm -hmm. out a little bit more of the force than the words of him who holds the seven stars as the ESV said. So what yeah, you I'm also, I have the, I have the CSB, which is the Christian standard Bible, which I, I, I really have actually been enjoying that translation, but they say, thus says the one who holds. So same thing. They, yeah. it almost has that, that, uh, prophet type feel. Yeah. And that, that actually does capture pretty well. I, the Greek is this phrase, tade lege, right? And it occurs in each one of the seven messages. That Each one of them begins with, thus says, or the, the, these are the words of, however you want to translate that. This phrase occurs more than 200 times in the Old Testament. And it's a standard formula for introducing a prophetic saying from God. So there's no question that the seven messages are clearly divine revelation, that are prophetic messages, and it puts John certainly in the role of a prophet. Hey everyone, we wanna thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we wanna remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access, but we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. So after we have the, this, thus says the Lord type, yeah. uh, that's just what I hear every time I, yeah, I that's good. read okay. that. Yeah. Um, so it, it then has some sort of like unique description of Jesus. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, you know, placing him also behind as the one behind these messages, like you said. 
so going back to the very beginning in chapter one, we had talked about this mm -hmm. prologue that happens. Uh, how many of these descriptions do we see coming from that prologue area? Well, actually, that's a, that's a good question. So we typically think, oh, okay, so each one of the seven messages begins with a unique description of Jesus that is relevant to the seven churches, and we'll discuss that later. And But those descriptions of Jesus don't come simply from that opening vision. So in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, I saw one like a son of man, his head and hair were white like wool, eyes like a flame of fire. Some of the descriptions in the seven messages go back to that description from Jesus. Mm. But some of them actually come from the description of Jesus at the second coming, or what we call the second coming passage, chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. And some of them come from Jesus's words in what we call the epilogue, which is 22 verses 6 through 21, the end of the book, the, the closing, mm -hmm. the conclusion, whatever you might call it. So, and that again also shows us how the book is overlapping and integrated, and you can't separate one part from the other, because the introduction to Jesus kind of comes from these th three parts. And then there's going to be one of the messages that actually has a totally unique description of Jesus that doesn't come from anything. So, uh, and we'll get to that when we go. Now, I encourage you then, if you're listening now to, if you're, and if you're not listening now, I'm not encouraging you, but if you are listening, <laughs> you get to be encouraged right now. If you're not listening now, you don't have to pay attention to any of this, right? That's right. If you're not listening okay. right now, go ahead and turn it off. Oh, yeah, keep okay, not listening. Yeah. Actually, if you're not listening right now, turn it back on. That's a good time to get back, <laughs> kind of come back. Okay. And hey, welcome everyone back to the show. Uh, uh, no, no, it, have your Bibles out. If you're not able to have your Bible available right now, kind of listen along, because what we're going to do now is we're going to go through the seven messages one part at a time. So we talked about each one begins with Tade Lege, thus says, or however you translate that. Then each one then begins with a description of Jesus. And we're going to go through each of the seven messages and the description of Jesus. Then we're going to go through the positive and negative words to each of the messages. And then we'll go back and go through each of the words to the promise of the one who overcomes. We're just going to keep going back and forth each of the messages. So Follow along with us in your Bibles if you can, and if not, just read carefully or listen carefully. Okay, so we covered a couple of things that are going to be standard in each of the messages now. So now let's get into the actual messages. Yeah. So uh, starting off in chapter two, verse one, uh, you have to the church in Ephesus, and and Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Yeah, uh, and this description of Jesus, which is the opening one, and the opening vision. And of course, it reminds them that Jesus is the one walking in the midst of the seven lampstands. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We were told that in verse 20 of chapter one. So Jesus is present in the midst of the seven churches. In verse eight, it's a it's to the church in Smyrna. Jesus is the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Hmm. Right, now, again, this one also connects Jesus, his words here to the opening description of Jesus. But not in the vision of verses 12 through 16, but in Jesus's own words in verses 17 through 18. Uh, I was dead, and hold him alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades, and I'm the, and I'm the, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, and the first and the last. But by the way, that, Jesus also calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and the beginning and the end in mm -hmm. chapter 22, verse 13. All right, just as you mentioned, verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1, it says, uh, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades, which mm. we'll see that in chapter uh, 20 <laughs> yeah. for sure. There's this idea of falling at his feet as, you know, as dead, mm. um, but he lays his right hand on you and says, you know, fear not. Uh, you get this really like kind of pastoral moment there. 
Well, and again, that's the thing. So John speaking to these churches, probably as the bishop overseeing all of these churches, knows them well. They know him. They respect him. If the message was written largely, as we said at the beginning, to complacent churches that were threatening with compromise for the sake of alleviating persecution and suffering, some of the churches were undergoing or about to undergo persecution and suffering, in particular, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And so the encouragement to the church in Smyrna that, hey, is basically, look, don't worry about it. I mean, I know you're going to worry about it, and I understand worrying about it, but here's the reality. Don't be afraid. Hmm. I'm the, I was dead, and, and I'm alive, and I've got the keys of death in Hades. They, what, what can they do to you that, that has this lasting effect? Nothing. The worst they can do to you is what they did to me, but I was dead, and I'm alive forevermore as well. And I think that's just something that we need to, to think about also more often. How much of the words of Jesus do we do we kind of balk at and do we we compromise or we soften a little bit because we are afraid? Mm. Yeah. All right. Now, one other thing here before we move any further, and that is both the letters to Smyrna and Philadelphia. And we talked about them before in the kind of the semi-loose chiasm that these two letters are very parallel to one another. They're both undergoing persecution. They're both small. They're both struggling. Uh, both the letters have problems with the local synagogues and all that good stuff there as well. But notice that the two descriptions that, these two messages, Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 8, I am the first and I am the last. And in chapter 3, verse 7, to the church in Philadelphia, he who is holy and who is true. Both of these churches are having trouble with the synagogues, but they also, both those statements, affirm the deity of Jesus. In other words, mm -hmm. Jesus is the divine one. The title, uh, the first and the last, of course, was used of the Father in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. But the title, he is holy and he is true is really significant. And that's the, the message of the church in Philadelphia. The Holy One is used to describe God throughout the Old Testament. There's a number of Old Testament passages. The Holy One of Israel says this in the book of Isaiah, for example, a number of times. It's especially common in the book of Isaiah. It occurs 25 times in the book of Isaiah. Hmm. And it's just this reminder of who Jesus is. And note, that must have been one of the questions or issues in the synagogue, right? What do we do with Jesus? Is Jesus a prophet? Okay, fine. That's, we can roll with that. But when Jesus comes along and says, no, I'm changing the way the rules work, we're including the Gentiles in this. And therefore, what that means is going to be this in terms of food laws and circumcision, things like that. This is shaking up the, the synagogues. And so the question at hand was, who is Jesus? And so in the messages to Philadelphia and Smyrna, or Smyrna and Philadelphia, both of these messages have titles of Jesus that correspond with his, with his deity, which I think is significant. Hmm. Wow. Which I think we mentioned earlier how uh, the book in general is just such a great Trinitarian book. Yeah. 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 The whole Bible kind of is. Uh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. You think? Just a little bit. That God guy was good at writing this stuff. Okay. Yeah. So uh, to the church in Pergamum, Jesus is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword and so this description of Jesus, it, it really links the messages to Pergamum, both with the description of Jesus in 116 that we saw, right? Uh, yeah. Where he, he has the sharp two-edged sword. It also links Jesus with uh, the sword coming out of his mouth at, at his uh, return as well. In chapter 19, yeah. In chapter 19, yeah. Mm -hmm. Jesus, mm -hmm. Jesus at his return. So 1915, let's actually look at 1915 first. 1915, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty. It sounds intense. Uh -huh. 
Now, this title is really significant. So again, it does come from chapter one. It's also reiterated in chapter 19. But its context is actually from Isaiah. So let's, let's look at two verses in Isaiah. I'll look at Isaiah 49, verse 2, if you want to look up Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. So let me start with Isaiah 49, verse 2. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword, and the shadow of his hand he has concealed me. He's also made me a select arrow, and he has hidden me in his quiver. So now let's go to Isaiah chapter 11. And Isaiah chapter 11 is the famous seven uh, spirits passage also in verse two. But if you read verse four, Isaiah 11, verse four. Yeah. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. And that, by the way, is actually cited in Second Thessalonians 2. I think we referred to before that Jesus slays the wicked with the breath of his mouth. Now, the, let's go to Isaiah chapter 1, one more passage now. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they all become wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So Isaiah opens with this, the mouth of, of the sword. Now here's the th significant. The sword was the symbol of power in the Roman world. In fact, death by the sword is a reference to death by beheading. And what we find out as we open up the page of the book of Revelation is that Rome is not the only one who has the sword. Right. And and what we'll discuss when we get to chapter four is the fact that one of the main themes of the book of Revelation is that Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Mm -hmm. And what we mean by that is this God's the one sitting on a throne, which we read, we alluded to in chapter four, verses one and two that we read earlier. And the fact that God's sitting on a throne is a threat. It's a challenge because the answer is, does not Caesar sit on the throne? And the book of Revelation says, actually, God's the one that's on the throne. And if you overcome, I'll even let you sit down with me on my throne. So very significant. When when we hear this language of Jesus and swore, swords and, and whatnot, mm. uh, how does does that take us to like a, a Hebrews four twelve where it says, uh, "For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart." Do you see a parallel there? Yes, I do. It's very interesting. So. The Bible refers to itself as the word of God, which is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It also refers to Jesus as the word of God, right? John chapter one. And now you have the parallel with the sword coming out of Jesus's mouth. Mm -hmm. And of course, Hebrews 4.12, it's, it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so you have that parallel there. What's interesting actually is this, and this and this will bring up a couple of significant issues as we proceed through our study. And that is John does not use the same word for sword, there's two basic words for sword oh, okay. in the Greek. He does not use the same word for sword as in Hebrews 4.12. And you would think that he would. Obviously, the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. That's Jesus' words. That's the word that comes out of his mouth. The whole idea of what we're talking about in the book of Revelation is the fact that Jesus does not use violence, but Jesus uses his spoken word. So certainly we, we want to make that connection there. We noted in our session, in our um, episode on numbers in the book of Revelation, that John will carefully use a certain word or phrase a certain number of times, a specific number of times, four times to refer to the creation, the four parts of the creation or the four directions, 
Seven times refer to totality or completion. Three times refer to God. Twelve times to refer to the people of God. And he just does this throughout throughout uh, throughout the book. And sometimes he'll even alter a word or a phrase because he's already used it seven times. And he doesn't want to he doesn't want to mess up the number and use it eight times. And we discussed then that the numbers enhance the meaning that uh, that's already present in the text. It helps us understand th- these things there. But another thing that's actually really really important, and I don't think scholars have figured this out enough yet. And that is John often links passages by repeating key words or phrases. Mm-hmm. So he'll repeat a word in one passage here and then in another passage over there. And he wants you to link them. We discussed this before uh, and earlier when we discussed uh, Jesus has a voice like the sound of many waters in chapter one, verse 15. And I said, you know, that phrase actually occurs three times in the book of Revelation. In one verse 15, Jesus is called Jesus's voice like the sound of many waters. But in chapter 14, verse two, the voice of the 144,000. It's like the sound of many waters. You know, like, that's kind of weird that Jesus' voice and the voice of the 144,000 are, are the same, basically, the same, same, described the same way. Well, the third time is in chapter 19, verse 6. And it's the voice of the great multitude that sounds like the voice of many waters. And I think that does show us that the 144,000, the great multitude, are indeed the same. There's a lot more arguments to support that we'll get to later on. But the significance of that is that the people of God are being described like Jesus. And that's actually a really important. Jesus died by the cross. We're to die by the cross. Jesus was dead. He's alive forevermore. We also will be dead, but we'll be alive forevermore. This is a fundamental theme in the book of Revelation. That God sends us now to go do what Jesus did, to love like Jesus loved. It's a very fundamental thing. But one of the questions that comes up now in the book of Revelation throughout the studies, and this is highly debated in the scholarly world. It doesn't matter whether they're conservative scholars or liberal scholars or wherever they might be, the scholarly world is, is debating the question of violence. Hmm. And one of the arguments, so Tremper Longman, who's been on our podcast before, a great Old Testament scholar, a brilliant scholar, done lots of work. In fact, we had him teach in Livermore uh, a number of years ago at a, at a course that we did at one of the seminaries there on the book of Psalms. He was involved in the New Living Translation, Translation of the Bible. He's a preeminent Old Testament scholar. And he wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation called Revelation, I think, Through Old Testament Eyes. Mm-hmm. And one of his basic platforms is the Old Testament's violent, whether you like it or not. He even has a book called, uh, uh, what is it? I think it's called like the Divine Warrior, Jesus as the Divine Warrior. Mm-hmm. And he shows how that Divine Warrior theme, Jesus is riding a white horse, totally legit. And so his argument is simple. The plagues in Egypt are prevalent in the book of Revelation. God did violence upon the Egyptians in the book of, e- in the book of uh, Exodus. God does violence in Joshua. God's a violent God, but his violence is just. And that's how he justifies it. And so he clearly reads the book of Revelation as a violent book. And one of the arguments that I'm making is, I don't think we should do that. I think the New Testament is, is emphatic. Jesus tells the disciples to put the swords away when they used them in the garden. Jesus himself says, uh, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over those in authorities, but not so among you. Most famous verse in the Bible is, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Violence in the New Testament seems to be something that God suffers not that God inflicts. And again, we've discussed this before. I don't deny that there's a judgment day and that there's violence, in, in this, at least in the description of judgment day. I'm not denying that. What I'm arguing is, is there violence in the interim? In the meantime, what's leading up to the divine, to the judgment day, the, or the day of wrath, if you want to call it that. And so the presence of the sharp sword in, the, in Jesus' mouth kind of brings this issue to the, to the forefront. I think that, that this argues that Jesus is not using divine violence before he even enters into the war in chapter 19. He's got blood in his garments, highly debated passage that we'll get to in, 
in about 40 weeks, <laughs> uh, but uh, nonetheless. And we obviously we discussed that on the YouTube videos if you want to go back to the Revelation chapter 19 uh, video there also. But many people are going to argue that the seals and the trumpets and the bowls represents God's violence upon the world and upon the nations. And I would say, no, we can't do this. And that's just not the way it works. And in fact, I think the, the sword and Jesus and John's use of the word sword actually exemplifies that John's trying to draw a distinction between the sword of Jesus and the sword of Rome. So here's the deal. There's two words for the sword in the New Testament, Machaira and Romphia. And they refer to two different swords, but they're almost always used interchangeably. So the, the Machaira was a short dagger-like sword, and it was like a knife. It was used for cutting. Uh, it's like a kitchen knife, a steak knife, a utility knife. It, it does more things like that. But it was also the sword of the Roman executioner. So John uses Machaira three times. And in every instance, he uses it to refer to the sword of execution in Romans 13. I'm sorry, not in Romans. In Revelation 13, 10, he uses it twice in Revelation 13, 10. And in Revelation 13, verse 14. The Romphia, however, was a large sword, a two-foot-long handle and a three-foot-long blade. Now, there's no question that these two words are, are used interchangeably. So they are used interchangeably in the Old Testament, of course, in the story of Balaam that we talked about earlier. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, those two words are used interchangeably. So that's the general consensus. They're, they're used interchangeably. Well, then I, I just went studying a little bit further and said, well, how does John use these two words? And he does use them interchangeably. In chapter 6, verse 4, the second seal, the second rider of the second horse, has a machaira, a short dagger-like knife sword, right? But the fourth rider on the fourth seal has a romphia, the long sword. So he does seem to use, okay, I'll use the machaira here and the romphia here. But then I began looking more carefully. I thought, well, look, here's what happens. When he refers to the sword of Jesus, he only uses the word romphia, the long hmm. sword the two-foot handle, three-foot blade. He only uses that word for Jesus. When he referred to the Roman sword of execution, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, he only uses Machaira. Hmm. So he does use the words interchangeably, but then he also says, yeah, but when it's Rome's sword, it's Machaira. When it's Jesus's sword, it's Romphia. And so I think that accounts for why John does not use the same word in the book of, um, as Hebrews, because Hebrews uses, of course, Machaira. Uh, as the sword. And John's like, sorry, that's the sword of Rome. It's the sword of the execution. We know that it's the sword, it's the sword of the executioner. And so John's going to use it that way in the book of Revelation. So I do think we draw a parallel with Hebrews 4.12, even though John doesn't use the same word. But I think we now know why he doesn't use the same word, because he uses that word specifically for the Roman sword of execution, the one in Hebrews 4.12, Machaira. And he uses Romphias exclusively for Jesus' sword. So I think that's the answer, that Jesus is not using violence because he even distinguishes between the sword of Rome and the sword of Jesus. It's interesting. Just as a, a point of, I don't know, to learn how to glean from mm -hmm. the scholars in the world who engage in this, because I know one of the biggest shifts that happened for me as someone who went from the the lay world to the scholarly world, I'm not a scholar, but mm -hmm. once you were engaging in seminary and you're, you're engaging yeah. with bigger ideas, right? And I think the biggest misconception that we have in the lay world is that when we find a scholar, you basically have to be all or nothing on them. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's like, 
and I've had numerous conversations with people, even in the in the church world, who yeah, yeah. Uh, there there might be like a famous pastor, scholar, theologian who we might have a lot of agreement on, but then there's something that we disagree on how he might interpret something. Right. And like even the elders in my church, they might not know what to do with. It's like, yeah. wait a minute, we don't agree with this guy on this one thing. It's like no, and it's like, but we have to agree with them on everything, <laughs> you know. Right, right. And so uh, just as I started becoming more well read, the the more you realize there's actually legitimate scholars who are doing faithful yes. study yes. who who could come down on different sides of things yes. and and as you acknowledge like this topic isn't even like a conservative versus liberal thing you have people on yeah. both sides coming down here what do you do just as the reader when you're realizing okay rob what you're presenting is going to be completely different than what a trump or longman is going to presenting yep. and both you guys are like being faithful to the text you're showing your work uh, what do you do as the layperson when you have just diametrically opposed things you obviously think you're right yes of right well, well i, but, I am that helps <laughs> but, yeah and, and and if trump God was on he would me in a dream last night oh really and there's yeah, yeah. golden tablets to confirm that yeah. <laughs> exactly. we'll cut, we'll cut that. But, and if tremper was on with us right now yeah. he would argue that he's right but he would he would say hey but rob i get where you're coming from I hope and, so. and you would sure. also you you would concede like a tremper i get where you're coming from yeah exactly scholars i, I think don't have as difficult of time right. wrestling with these things because we under, you guys understand that yeah there's different perspectives happening there mm -hmm. uh how could lay people become more charitable just as we view yeah. just it, as we view theological perspectives in general that are all within the realms of orthodoxy yeah yeah uh, but but how can we just learn to become more charitable and not to say okay i disagree with this guy here therefore he must be wrong on everything like how do we process right, that right. sort of thing because is there any more relevant book than revelation to learn how to be charitable towards other perspectives uh, well no but the answer is yes at the same time it's called matthew mark luke and john yeah right yeah. <laughs> uh, love your neighbor as yourself love your enemies or first peter pray for those who persecute you and bless those who curse you you're like oh really i have to go that far that, that's really what, what we're asking right it's, and again, a lot of what we experience in the modern church, this is my experience, my context, my background, as I've been um, processing this for 35 years or more. And that is a lot of what we call our hermeneutics, our interpretation or whatever, the fancy, using the fancy word, is fear-based. Mm -hmm. we, we, we have a hermeneutics of fear. If, if I concede to this liberal on this issue, what other issues am I going to have to concede to him on or her on? Mm -hmm. And if I, if I give on this issue... Then what do I do with that? You know, if if Genesis is not necessarily literal, then maybe Jesus is not literal. You know, it's mm -hmm. just this fear-based hermeneutics or fear-based interpretation. And, and the reality is, you know, learn to love your neighbor as yourself and learn to be content with the fact that God is God and he's probably bigger and he is bigger and his ways transcend our ways. As the book of Isaiah says, my ways are not your ways and your ways. And just learn to be content and at peace with that, not knowing everything. But that's hard. It's just, it's hard to do. And it, it's hard. It, we don't give the same kind of grace when we come to political issues. We don't give mm -hmm. the same kind of grace when we come to social issues. And we certainly don't give the same kind of grace when we come to theological issues. And the reality is, you know what? They really are. In fact, on that note, Vinny, some of the more what you and I might consider more liberal uh, or middle or, or left-sided uh, scholars on these issues, actually, I think more of them are more quick to say the book of Revelation is not violent. It's not. Mm -hmm. there are more of them speaking that there, there's uh, there are a number on the right saying that but there's more on the left saying I'm like sure this is really weird and i was chuckling before I, I shared this with some others i said you know i didn't actually include this but i i just finished up my commentary sent to the publishers a couple weeks ago and i was obviously saving the conclusion and the introduction for the very very end of the whole process 
And I was thinking, okay, so I started taking some notes about three or four weeks ago, like what I might say in the conclusion or whatever, or in the introduction. And I was chuckling a little bit because I thought, all right, so the conservatives are going to struggle a little bit with it's not literal. It's not literal. It's not literal. Mm -hmm. And yet what I'm saying is, and what I'm arguing, even though it kind of, they're not certain about this is Jesus is Lord. God is love. God is gracious. God, here I am defending this graciousness of God and this love of God for creation. And yet they're not sure. So they're, they want to stick to their literalness and make God a God who's going to zap and, and pour wrath upon people. You better repent because look what I did to your cousin, you know, blood and boils. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see that happening. And I respect, I understand that people might, might still hold to that view. But so here they are holding to that view of God. And I'm holding this view of, you know, I think God's actually a God of love. And his justice was, was uh, accomplished through the cross of Jesus there. And yet the irony of them not being, you know, kind of, not being at ease with, with the way I'm handling the book of Revelation there. So I don't know, say, side note a, a little bit there, but I think it's just this learning to understand what love really means and what it really mm-hmm. looks like. And I, I'm the first one to admit it's taken me 55, 57 years to, I think I'm starting to figure this out now. And I've had to go to my wife in 34 years to say, why did you stay with me for the first 33 and a half? <laughs> Because I, I ask her that out. all the time. Yeah. I'm always at center Facebook messages. Like, how do you yeah. deal with well, this? Well, hey, at least my wife didn't punch me in the mouth and give you a sore tooth and break, and break your tooth. <laughs> well played. Well played. Yeah, we want to go there. <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, you don't get a cracked tooth, Vinny, eating pasta, right? It's true. So, you, I mean, just because I'm Italian, you're, it's a racial slur. Me, you didn't have to tell me that when you had a cracked tooth, it was Shayla. And I know she packs up, <laughs> she can pack, pack up, she can. Yeah. Pack a punch. Pack a punch. She's <laughs> but, little, yeah. but she is Portuguese. So, you yeah, know, she is, that's right. Yeah, so, very yeah. feisty. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay. Yeah. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. To the church of Thyatira, Jesus is the son of God, the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Yeah. Uh, So the description of Jesus of having eyes like a flame of fire, of course, comes from the opening vision, chapter one, verse 14. And it also is used of Jesus in chapter 19, the second coming passage, verse 12. But this description of Jesus also has a unique, something unique here. First off, he's named the son of God. I think we might have mentioned this before. This is the only time that Jesus is named in the seven messages. And it's also the only time he's named the son of God in the entire book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the son of God is a title that brings us, I, I think, to the conflict that's throughout the entirety of the New Testament, of course. And that is, which kingdom is in power? The kingdom of God or the kingdoms of the world? The Roman emperors, of course, beginning with Caesar Augustus. So Caesar Augustus becomes the first emperor of the Roman Empire. I think it's AD 29 or something. And I couldn't remember the date exactly last time we discussed this. He becomes the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar was deified. So Caesar Augustus became a son of the gods. In fact, he was thought to be the incarnation of Apollo. And we're going to have uh, Dr. Alan Bandy on maybe in four or five, six weeks uh, now. And we'll discuss a couple of different themes that are in the book of Revelation, but we'll also discuss the Apollo cults and the cult of Apollo there in some more detail event. Uh, one of the things that's going on then is uh, in the first century, many emperors highlighted the connection with the god Apollo. And they sometimes identified themselves as descendants of Apollo. 
meant that Apollo worship was very prevalent. And in fact, there was the worship of Apollo Terimnus in Thyatira. Uh, and it was closely tied with the emperor worship. Hmm. So this might be especially prevalent in the city of Thyatira. So not only is this the middle letter of the seven or of the middle of the seven messages that Jesus described, that is he's named, but he's named the son of God. Now, the next significance is that the name son of God or title son of God comes from Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is quoted throughout the New Testament, but especially in the book of Revelation several times, and it's applied to Jesus. So let's go to Psalm 2 and kind of examine this here. And and we're running a little low on time because of all your tooth jokes that we're going to have to. (laughs) This this show is long long in the tooth. It's long in the tooth. That's right. So Psalm 2 then uh, begins, why are the nations in an uproar? And then verse 2, the kings of the earth taking their stand and the rulers of the earth against the Lord's and against his anointed one. And the word for anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach or Messiah. In the Greek, of course, it's the Christ. They're taking their stand against the Lord's, against the Christ. Verse three, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And verse four, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. So here's this holy war taking place. And God's like, really, seriously? Uh, They will speak to them in his anger. Uh, He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, he says... And when you're reading the Psalms and, and the prophets, by the way, you have to be careful because the speaker will often change and you don't know mm-hmm. that the speaker changes. They just expect you. All of a sudden now God's speaking. So verse six, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten. Now the speaker is, by the way, the Messiah, because he said to me, you are my son. Mm-hmm. So the son of God is this title for the king of Israel. And of course, that's going to be applied to Jesus in, in uh, Revelation chapter 12 and elsewhere. So I think it's really significant that he's not only called the son of son of God in the middle of these seven letters, but in the in the city of Thyatira that had the cult of Apollos. Hmm. So we move into chapter three and to the church in Sardis. Jesus is the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, which we would refer back to once again chapter one and the the seven uh, stars that he holds right which are the seven churches yes. yeah so the seven stars goes back to chapter one right jesus is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands and uh, and has the seven stars in his right hand but the seven spirits actually is unique and this is what's interesting about it the descriptions of jesus that we see in each of the seven messages all they all begin with a description of jesus primarily come from the opening vision of chapter one verses 12 through 16 or maybe Jesus's words to John in 17 through 20 of chapter one. Sometimes they come from the description of Jesus at the second coming, chapter 19, verse 11 through 16. And sometimes they come from Jesus in the epilogue, 22 verses six through 21. But this one doesn't occur in any of them. This, the one who has the seven spirits of God. And we discussed this, the title, the seven spirits of God with Dr. Harris, Dana Harris. Dana Harris yeah. Yeah. We then have to the church in Philadelphia. So Jesus is the one who is holy, the one who is true, the one who has the key of David, the one who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. All right. So we discussed this a little bit earlier when we discussed the one who is holy in reference to the fact that Smyrna and Philadelphia were two churches that were undergoing persecution and struggling, especially facing confrontation from the local synagogues and that those titles, the first and the last in Smyrna, and the one who is holy here in the church to, in Philadelphia were titles of deity. And that might be one of the questions. Who is Jesus? What do we do with this Jesus? Is he the Messiah? And yeah, he's not only the Messiah, he's God, the son uh, come down to uh, come down to us. 
Um, but the one who is true is added to this title here. So the one who is holy, the one who is true. And it's intriguing because both these titles are applied to the Father elsewhere. In chapter 4, verse 8, and chapter 6, verse 10, the Father is the one who is holy and the one who is true. What's also interesting is this. Jesus also says he's the one who has the key of David in chapter 3, verse 7. And he opens and no one shuts. And of course, that reminds us of chapter 1. Now, right? Jesus said, I have the key of David. Or actually, he says, I have the keys of death and Hades in chapter 1. Most likely, the key of death and Hades is, of course, the key of David here. So now, of course, it reminds them that, yeah, hey, guys, even if Jesus, even if the local synagogue shuts their doors upon you, don't worry about it. Jesus has the key to the new Jerusalem, and he's going to open it, and you're not going to have any problem. Finally, when we get to Laodicea, it, Jesus is the, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Yeah. All right, so these three titles of given to Jesus are, of course, not used anywhere else in the entire book of Revelation. So again, another uniqueness. This means that the description of, to, of Jesus to the church in Laodicea is obviously the most unique. And here's what's interesting. The title, the Amen, comes from Isaiah 65, verse 16. It says, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. He who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. If I'm not mistaken, the Hebrew here has Amen, the God of Amen. And the Septuagint, which, of course, my translation apparently is going by, says, substitute the word truth for the amen. So the introduction to the, of Jesus in the church of Laodicea was the amen, the faithful and true witness. And in Isaiah 65, it's the God of the amen, or as some translations say, the God of truth. And so another emphatic affirmation of the deity of Jesus here, there, uh, in this description, of course, Jesus is the amen and the faithful and true witness. And the Septuagint just means the Greek translation oh, of the Old you. Testament. Yeah. yeah. Um, so with that, you have this deity of Christ reference. I remember uh, when I was hanging out with Jehovah's Witnesses years ago, I'm just first starting uh, yeah. theology and Trinitarian theology. And one of the things that they were trying to point me to in terms of them proving that Jesus is a created being was Revelation 3.14. And it says that he is the beginning of right. creation. And I didn't know what to do with that because, right. well, the beginning, you, you can't have a beginning without having a beginning, right? Yes. So yes. how do we interpret this? Yeah, and I, I remember the, those days, actually, when you, had, when we, you were having yeah. all those conversations there. The first off is that this word is actually a little bit difficult to translate. Beginning is probably the best translation. The New American Standard, the ESV, the New Living Bible, and the New King James all use the word beginning there. The word may be translated like origin or source. Uh, the mm -hmm. New Revised Standard Version does that. Then that Bible, I think, uses originator. The, the word is used in a theological sense, and that's so that Jesus is the source of the new creation. It's similar to what it means when he's the firstborn from the dead. Mm -hmm. The word firstborn doesn't mean like the first one actually born. It just means the first one in order. And it actually applies an authority or a privilege. More pre preeminent. Yeah, a, a preeminence mm -hmm. that kind of comes with it there. All right, Jesus is the first one from the born from the dead because he was the first one to rise. When it says that Jesus is the, new, is the beginning of the new creation, it simply means that he's the source and it's ruler. So he's the ruler. The, the beginning of the creation of God means he's the one who's the ruler, the, the authority over it. So... Mm -hmm. The word actually used here is feminine, and the masculine form of the same word is in chapter 1, verse 5, and he's the ruler. The fact that Jesus ends the message to the church in Laodicea with, the one who overcomes will I'll grant the right to sit down with me on my throne, indicates obviously that Jesus is more than just 
um, a created being. He's he's divine. He's eternal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, how is the description of Jesus? We just went through briefly some of the descriptions yeah. of Jesus in the seven messages. How is this relevant to the situation of each? Not only is do each of the seven messages begin with "Thus says," which is a an introduction to prophetic message that John's a prophet. They're coming from Jesus, and then each message begins with a description of Jesus that was relevant to each of the churches. The descriptions of Jesus come primarily from chapter 1, chapter 19, and then the epilogue in chapter 22, but there's some exceptions to that. But here's the deal. In the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 1, he's the one who who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And it probably is an indication that the church in Ephesus was struggling, and most likely in their call to love one another. We'll discuss this more as as we proceed. And the fact that Jesus is the one who walks among the lampstands is just a reminder. And it may be an encouragement. Hey, look, I'm there. I'm in, the, I'm in your midst. But it might also be a reminder that Jesus is in sovereign control. And it mm-hmm. may be a warning to them. Mm-hmm. Because it says uh, in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, it says, But I have this against you. You left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you. And I'll, I'll remove your lampstand out of, out of its place unless you repent. So I think Jesus is being present in the midst of the seven churches. I walk among the seven gold lampstands, reminds the church in Ephesus that I am ever present and I'm here as a source of encouragement, but it's also a warning. We already know that the seven stars are the seven churches, but what's the significance of him holding these things? Scholar who's written a wonderful book on the seven churches or the, the, the sermons of the seven churches, I think he calls them. Wema, I think his name is pronounced. He said, emperors like to present themselves on coins as demigods whose power extended beyond earth to control the planets and the stars. So after the death of his 10-year-old son in 83, in the year 83, the emperor Domitian declared that the boy had become a god and that his wife, Domitia, had become the mother of a god. And he issued a coin to honor his deceased son. That coin portrays him sitting on a globe in a position of power over the whole world. And he holds seven stars representing the seven planets in his outstretched arms. This is also true for the emperor Hadrian, whose actually rule is in the beginning of the second century, 117 and following there. He issued a coin with his image on one side and with the crescent moon and seven stars on the other side. Uh, so the, the idea of Wema uh, notes is that it's not a subtle, it's a not so subtle message that Hadrian is powerful enough to control not only the earthly events, but also what happens in the heavens among the moon and the stars. So Jesus, however, the book of Revelation is making an explicit statement in mm. your face, Rome. Jesus is the one who has the seven stars in his right hand, and he's the mm. ruler of the kings of the earth. And this is just another example how we first and foremost need to know our Old Testaments in order yeah. to understand the book of Revelation. But there's so much first century yeah. uh, imagery that's just culturally would have been relevant to Rome and in, in just innate in Roman culture that we just need to study that in order to understand uh, some of the keys as well. Good. Well, hey, uh, next time we're going to circle back around and take another pass through the the messages, right? Excellent. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll keep going for a few more weeks. Few more weeks. Nice. It's good stuff. All right, everyone. Hope you guys are enjoying it. We'll see you guys next time. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast, and we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.